Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Whether the soil in the parable of the sower, the earth itself, over which the colonials love to impose the illusion of control, the movement of Jesus and Luke imposed upon by the crowds, or our insistence upon active listening in lieu of a passive hearing, The pattern is evident. We not only imagine that we are something when we are nothing, but we go to great lengths to prove we are something, even if it means driving poor people off a cliff into a genocidal war that will result in nothing except more war. Do you think there is a difference between your views about whatever it is you think about whatever you say because when you speak you are for peace, but then whatever you say you are for war? I have news for you. It is not good news. It is not bad news. It is just news, plain and simple. Your premise, whoever you are, whatever it is, more than ignorant, is invalid. Yes, you are wrong. How can you say that, Father Mark? Because I read the Bible, and I know exactly what I am. Do you know exactly what you are? Don't interrupt. Oh, wait, wait. I'm a text. You have no control over me or my premise, which is not your premise. All you can do is ignore me or ridicule me, but you can't shut me up because I am written. From my perspective, you are nothing more than a pair of ears. And if you have ears, you have no choice but to hear, which means you are under judgment. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. When Jeremiah finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, the priests and the prophets and all the people, seized him, saying, You must die. Yep. The thing is, it's not rocket science. Whether we are talking about Eastern Europe or the Middle East, stop defending your land because it doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. We have one Father in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. We human beings, all of us, 
are his children together with the animals, the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, and the vegetation. Many in the media have referred to some of us as human animals. We are all God's creatures, his animals, the families of the earth. Those of us who know what we are sit in a circle each day, holding hands, sharing everything. To paraphrase John Lennon, I hope one day everyone will join us. Each time you defend yourself, you attack Jeremiah and throw him in the stocks. Brothers and sisters, the God of Scripture does not abandon his prophets. There will be a reckoning. I know for a fact that you can hear me. Whether or not you listen is your problem. This week's episode is in loving memory of Father Daniel Simon, who was assistant and then head pastor in the refugee church of my youth. Like the towns and villages its founders left behind, this church is erased from the historical record, but not forgotten. Likewise, Father Daniel's commitment to the gospel is committed to God's eternal memory for the sake of the generation yet to come. So we keep our hand to the plow with Father Daniel, as commanded by the Lord who said, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verse 1. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 504 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This morning, I attended the funeral of the priest that baptized me. Actually, I was baptized by Father Daniel Simon and my grandfather. There's a picture my mom always shows me when she wants to remind me what a pain in the neck I am. She said it took two priests to dunk you. <laughs> it was it was important. It was an important funeral. He was an important man. He was the second priest at the church that I grew up in. And after my grandfather died, he kept the doors of the church open for at least 10 years. I'm not sure how long, Richard, but at least 10 years. That's the church that I write about or that I mention in Dark Sayings, in the book that I just published. And he's a great example of someone who gave his life for the cause. I mean, he never received any pay for his priestly service. And I think there are a lot of clergy like that who give themselves to the cause, not just clergy, teachers, public service workers. You know, I compare in the book teachers, 
mothers, clergy, nurses, doctors, and I reflect on the problem of self-referentiality in the United States and the way in which Americans, I don't say this exactly, but this is what we do. We try to assuage our own shame and guilt by making everybody the same. But Father Dan and people like him are not the same. They are greater, not because they're better than us, but because the cause which they serve for the sake of others is greater than all of us. And that's all I wanted to say. It must be said, and we have to just accept it, that not everyone is the same. Not everyone's work is equal. And that's just the way it is. And it's hard for people to hear that, and I don't care. So I'm thankful to God that I had the opportunity one last time to kiss the hand of Father Dan as he held the gospel before being laid to rest. I talk a lot about duty. I learned duty from many people. I definitely learned the meaning of duty also from Father Dan. May his memory be eternal. I heard one time someone say, so you came and you learned and you say, okay, I learned everything I need to know. It was fantastic, changed my life, and now I don't need it anymore. I'm going to go do my own thing because I learned everything I need to learn. And he said, okay, well, first of all, you may be lying. You still need to learn more. But let's say you're right. Let's say you're right. You learned everything you needed and it changed your life. What about these people who now need to hear this? What about them? The only reason you are able to hear this is because somebody learned and didn't leave. And those people who put their hand to the plow and don't turn back, but just keep plowing are the only opportunity for the next generation. And I'm grateful for those people who came before us because if it weren't for them, we would have nothing to learn and we would be on our own. And so, you know, I'm hoping that as we talk today about listening and obedience, how that is the only hope for the next generation. If we don't teach, there's nothing for the next generation to learn. And it's out of honor to those who taught us who didn't cut and run once they learned enough and it started getting hard to teach a bunch of whippersnappers. They stuck around. I unfortunately never met Father Daniel, but I'm grateful for those who taught me because without that, what would I have? I mean, I was, you and I were making some jokes about last week's title. Who's going to understand what last week's title was? And I said, I feel good that I actually knew what it was the first time I read it. But that's not to my account. That's because of my teachers. I didn't learn that on my own. And I read this beautiful rabbinic saying, the sayings of the fathers in the Mishnah, don't add glory to yourself because you've learned much Torah, because this is what you were made for. The more I pay attention to people who study sacred texts, be it the Tanakh, the New Testament, or the Quran, 
the more I realize we all speak the same way. I'm quite serious. I'm not talking about religious people. Religious people all say weird things that pertain to identity. But people who are serious about what the text is saying come from a completely different place because they speak what pertains to wisdom. And wisdom sounds nothing like what pertains to identity. So it doesn't surprise me that what you said is completely aligned with the way scripture talks. And I'm not talking about Judeo-Christianity, because once you use that language, you're speaking from the perspective of colonial civilization. I heard an Orthodox rabbi who was explaining at a conference with Muslims how Orthodox Jews do not lay any claim on the Holy Land because from their perspective, the land belongs to God. He is the only sovereign king. They have no right to lay claim to the land, to the earth, or as we were saying last week, to the bloods. The lifeblood belongs to God. The land belongs to God. And the Muslim woman with whom he was having this conversation was completely aligned and it had nothing to do with politics or identity. They were speaking from the perspective of the text. They weren't speaking as a Muslim and a Jew. They were speaking as children of Abraham. It's high time we submit to our father, Abraham. I don't know what else to say, Rich. It's so lovely, the example you gave. None of us are submitting to the text. All of us are asserting ourselves. We are not broken. We are not Eucharistic. We are assertive and egotistic. We are not Eucharistic. If you hear what I'm saying, Rich. The difference between speaking out of one's own identity and speaking out of the text is that out of your identity, you are the reference and your people are the reference. Whereas when you speak from the point of view of an ancient text, you have to listen and study and do the work to hear what is being said. And as soon as you impose what's being said, then it's about you and your identity. This is the fine line. That's why we always talk about this, because a lot of times I think it gets confusing when we talk about identity versus the text, because they seem kind of apples and oranges. They don't really seem like the same thing, but this is the difference is what is your reference point, which we talk about a lot. What is your reference point? Is your reference point listening and having the text correct you so that you can follow it correctly? Or are you the reference point so that the text follows your point of view and the text speaks correctly according to your identity, right? This is why they're so close, making sure that we are listening at all times to the text and following that text. In that spirit, Richard, let's proceed. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, Logon to Theu, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. 
I'm going to take the opportunity, Richard, to zero in on what I consider a problematic translation of the word akuin. The New American Standard Bible, which tries to be literal but fails, as we've said so many times, all translations are interpretations and all interpretations are problematic. And we've even said it about the Masoretic. Why have we done so? At least I've tried to make the point in the intros to the podcast. Why? Why have I stressed that? Because even with the Hebrew text, once you vocalize it, you're making a decision about what the word means because the consonants could be vocalized in many different ways. You're deciding it means this instead of that. And ultimately, when you read something as the one vocalizing the text, you have to do the work to figure out from the original symbols on the scroll within context what it means. And the person to whom you are vocalizing it then has to hear it. And I'm using the word here. You can't see Richard nodding because we, when we talk, we can see each other. But I'm using the word hear, not listen. Because one of the interesting things about Scripture, and those of you who have been following Father Paul's podcast series, called Tarazi Tuesdays. Of course, his name in Arabic is Tarazi, not Tarazi. We use the English pronunciation of his name. But those of you who have been following Tarazi Tuesdays know that in what appears to be an oddity in the English language, he insists that those who follow the podcasts are not his listeners, but his hearers. His hearers, he says, my hearers, which seems strange. It's not a normal expression. No other podcast on the airwaves talks about people who follow the program as being hearers. Why would he do that? Because the act of hearing in the English language is passive. The act of listening in English is active. That's the distinction in the English language. Now, in Hebrew and in Arabic, you know, Rich will talk a bit about the Greek this morning also, but this word akuo in Greek in the Septuagint corresponds to this very famous word. Everybody should know this word, even if you know nothing. If you know anything about the Middle East, about Judaism, even if you know nothing about the Bible, you must have heard this word, Shema, which means to hear. Why? Because people talk about the Shema. It's like a common thing. If you have a Jewish friend in New York, you've heard this expression. What you don't know, but you're going to learn from us, like so many words in biblical Hebrew, there's a corresponding Arabic word. Stamia in Arabic means he heard. 
But the point that I want to make isn't, once again, that there's this close relationship between biblical Hebrew and Arabic and other Semitic languages, which there is, and you should learn it and really take it seriously, especially those of you who are Arabic speakers who have been wasting time not diving into biblical Hebrew, which is a necessity for the sake of the cause of preaching scripture. But it's really to emphasize something Rich and I were talking about, that scripture is concerned with the passive aspect of auditory function. Whereas English splits listening from hearing. Scripture is interested in the passive aspect. It's very much like this conundrum. And everyone I speak to still wants to convince me. And everyone who preaches about the parable of the sower still struggles with this, even when they try to accept what the text is saying, that the soil has no agency. They still somehow are stuck because they can't accept the bitter pill, the indigestible pill of Scripture, that the soil is not the agent in the story. In the very same way, the one upon whose ears the announcement of the call falls have no agency. And what is it you said, Richard, about the ears? They have no what? Earlids. Ears have no earlids. I love that expression. Ears have no earlids. Just think about that. To hear is not something you get credit for. It's not something you can control. So when you hear Mark, for example, say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, Jesus and Mark, it's not what we think it is. It's not saying anyone who's capable of hearing or anybody who wants to listen. No, you're not getting it. He's saying if you have ears, you're in trouble because that means that your auditory function works and you're under judgment. So it doesn't matter whether your brain, to use the modern marketing term, which I struggle against obnoxiously, it doesn't matter whether your intellect is engaged or not because your ears are attached to the side of your head. And unless they're plugged with wax, O oh Israel, and since you have no earlids, even if you put your hand over them, it's not going to help you. You heard. That's what's going on here with this verb akuo, which corresponds to the Hebrew. Let me just talk about a term we use in linguistics, which is called semantic range. A given word covers a certain range of meaning. One of the difficulties in translating is that one word is similar in semantic range, but not the same. Whereas in one language, you can use two words. There may be only one corresponding word in the other language in most cases. So one of the most popular examples of this in Russian, you have the word sinyi and the word galuboy. Sinyi means dark blue and galuboy means light blue. In English, we just have the word blue. So if a Russian is trying to translate something, and he comes across the word blue, what's he supposed to say? He has to choose either senior or galuboy. And if he hasn't actually seen the thing, he just has to make an assumption. He's gonna have to guess. Well, it seems like this is probably be darker than the other. I'm imagining it as a light blue, so it's gonna be galuboy. 
But the next translator is like, no, I think it would probably be darker. So it would probably be sinye. This is what happens when it comes to Russian is you have to make a choice in Russian, whereas you don't have to in English. Either one you read in Russian, if you want to translate it into English, you just say blue and you're covered. So it's easier. Now, English is one of these things where we have this distinction between hear and listen, whereas here is a more passive action and listen is a more active action. I like your example a lot, Father, because I think we should probably call those consumers of the podcast as hearers and not listeners. I think that makes sense because, yes, the sound went in your head, but did you listen? <laughs> Depends. Exactly. If you were working out, you know, maybe you were listening, maybe you weren't listening. You heard. So if we want to look at our statistics, we can only actually see the hearers. We can't see the listeners. This is the point. So here we have this tricky word, akuo, because akuo covers both hearing and listening. Your translation translated here, listen, and King James that I'm reading here translates here. Well, which is it? Either. Just like the Gullaboy and Sini example. The translator had to imagine what this group of people were trying to do. Were they trying to get close enough so that the sound waves would hit their ear? Because that sounds more like hearing. Or were they interested in processing what was happening and obeying it and following it? That sounds more like listening. Sometimes this word akuin in Greek translates the word shamar in Hebrew, which means to keep, like keeping the commandments, which means obeying exclusively. It, it cannot mean just to hear something with the organ on the side of your head. This is the trick in translating is that you cannot find an English word that's going to cover the semantic range that akuo is going to cover. So as we hear this word, it's important to understand that. Now, when Father Paul makes this strong distinction, one of the things is that because we have no ear lids, the sound comes in. But if we're hearing a text being read, there is no fast forward or rewind. Whatever is being spoken Whatever is being read controls me and my thoughts. I don't get to choose which verse is being read. I don't get to choose what word it is if it's only consonants and someone else is supplying the vowels. I can only submit or not submit to the text. But if I read, I can flip pages. If I'm hearing a podcast, I can fast forward. I can rewind. I can re-listen if I didn't get it the first time. I can control the text, but when it comes to the liturgical reading of these texts, when it comes to the group reading, the congregational reading of these texts, I don't get to choose. I am controlled by the text and the words in the text. I can only accept or not accept them. I can't change them. I can't move ahead. I can't go back. I can't do what I want with them. This is where the reader of the text controls even the hearers because you only get to hear what the reader pronounces. And that's Father Paul's constant emphasis that in the Quran, it's always qara, read, exclaim, assuming to the people or whoever is in earshot who can hear, but hearing only is not enough. Obeying also is part of it because you're assumed to be listening. 
But when Father Paul talks about the people who are trying to process his podcast, he's not assuming that they're listening, only that they're hearing. The assumption in English is that they're pressing around him and listening because they're good students. That would be an easy assumption to make hearing this in translation, meaning hearing this in interpretation. It's an interpretation in English, at least in this particular text that I'm reading, that the crowd really wants to hear what he's saying. But it doesn't submit to the storyline that we've been hearing. In the storyline that we've been hearing, the crowd has been an obstacle to Jesus who's trying to obey his father. The crowd has been an obstacle to Jesus who's been trying to fulfill his function as the locum tenens of Elohim at the midbar as the shepherd, right? The crowd has been in the way. And here, this word in Greek, epikime, which in the sentence is to epikiste, yes, it could be rendered pressing, but it has the implication also of attack, of pressing upon, of potentially harassing, if you consider its alignment in Hebrew and the Septuagint. It has an aggressive context that implies they're working against him, not just to hold him back or press upon him, but to harass, even in the Greek, to attack him. So if you're hearing it in the storyline and you're following the crowd's function in the storyline and you're paying attention, they're hearing him, but it's not necessarily positive. So it's literature and we just have to be a little bit less dreamy when we come across some of these terms. This is an interesting point, Father, because you know we also have in Hebrews 9.10 where it talks about the regulations imposed on the people. Here, the crowd are imposing on him to hear the word. This is questionable. Are they pushing him so that he has to speak? Because like we said in the very beginning of the episode, are they here to listen and obey, or are they here to hear if Jesus is going to speak according to what their identity requires him to say? This is the question, because this word can mean urgent, but it can also mean to impose. So their urgency is not necessarily Jesus's urgency. We always have to be careful. Jesus is going to go at his tempo. He's going to leave when it's time to leave. He's going to come when it's time to come. And he's got to move on when it's time to move on. You don't get to impose his schedule on him. I mean, for heaven's sake, I mean, the farmer is going to plant his seed when it's time to plant the seed. He doesn't have time that he can lose. He has to do it. So finally, when Jesus is here at the Lake of Gennesaret, Gennesaret is an interesting word because the etymology is a little funny. Gane Sarim which means the gardens of the princes or gardens of the leaders. And this reminded me so much of our conversation last week, Father, when we were talking about going to the synagogues of Judea versus the synagogues of the Galilee, where, yes, he's in the Galilee, but he's got his eye on the leaders of Judea. And here, when he's in the Galilee, he's in the gardens of the leaders, of the princes. He's already going against 
the leaders, even in Nazareth, because this is what Jesus does. Yes, he has his eye on the leaders in Judea, but he has his eye on every leader because every leader wants to impose his own will with the urgency of everyone doing what he wants. But Jesus, I almost said, is his own man. As far as humans are concerned, he is his own man. But he is not his own man because he is the man of his father, God, and he follows and he doesn't just hear what the Father says. He obeys in every action that he takes. He obeys. It is not just with his ears, but with his entire spirit that animates him to perform the next action that is imposed upon him by the word of his Father. I'm so thankful, Richard, that you mentioned obedience once again. I don't know that the word obedience in English works either. I was having a conversation today with someone trying to explain to them how scripture works and why it is that scripture tears everything down. People really want to be built up. That's what they want. They come to church for a pep talk. They, they come to church to be inspired, to be lifted up, to be recharged. I mean, people want the priest to be a motivational speaker. They want some kind of what they call spiritual nourishment. It's evident to me. I mean, you know how this works, Richard. We've been teaching for years. You and I are students of Father Paul. We're students, more importantly, of Scripture through Father Paul. And I just was trying to explain to this person, that's not how it works. Scripture, as I wrote in Dark Sayings, I said it universally meaning I don't care who you are, as Paul says in Romans, whoever you are, O man. Scripture is a rejection of your premise. That's just a statement, whoever you are. It just tears you down. Because ultimately, we have to be nothing in order to be free from the nonsense. We have to be nothing in order to understand that God is the one who is sovereign. So when you talk about Christ being obedient, it doesn't quite capture this point because the person asked me, why do you have to be low? And my response was, well, who do you think is the lowest of all? And then people get theological and I can't stand that because they say, oh yes, Jesus was the lowest of all. But then everybody lifts up Jesus in worldly terms, which is disgusting. Because in scripture, Jesus is the lowest of the low. But people don't tolerate that. That's why they lift him up in worldly terms. The only one who can lift Jesus up is the Father. But he does so in a way that is not visible to human eyes. And the function of scripture is to put us in that same position and we don't want it. But it's only in that position of being put in a low, low, low place that we no longer see ourselves above anyone else, that we finally are under the boot of the one sovereign. And once you're there, it's not a question of obedience. 
That's why people talk about having a choice to obey or not to obey, Rich. I'm just reflecting on the silliness of the Western choice. You're either min adama with Jesus, which isn't even a question because we are all min adama. <laughs> we just deny it. We imagine we are something when we are nothing. Jesus doesn't imagine he is men adama, ben adam, which is how the text refers to him. We don't accept it because we grasp at power. When you talked about obedience, Richard, I just wanted to make that point because the rejection of that teaching is why we're all killing each other. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.